0: All right, Ramos, it's a big day. You uh, you are about to interview G.K. Beale, but before we get to that, let's talk Beale. What's your favorite book from G.K. Beal? What, what even got you into listening to G.K. Beale? What has he taught you? I mean, we could go on for three hours before we actually get into the actual episode. Would love to hear it.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, what got me into reading J.K. Beale is was um his commentary on Revelation because that that thing's been around forever. Uh the NIGTC commentary or whatever the acronym is for that monstrosity. It is really a monstrosity of 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 a commentary. It's a massive exegetical commentary, but but that was when I kind of knew about J.K. Beale just as a commentator, like commentaries. And I didn't know that Dr. Beale was developing this robust, you know, biblical theology, right? Like the stuff that we know about him now, uh, his, um, his big New Testament, uh, theology, uh, what is it called? A biblical theology of the New Testament, uh, that massive tome. And I'm definitely talking to him about that. Uh, but also like his IVP book, which is on temple. And, uh, and that is a very important book for people to understand, uh, just the temple, uh, theme, uh, in the Bible, the temple motif in scripture and how that informs um, so many different aspects of our biblical theology going all the way back to the Garden of Eden and all the way forward to the newly constituted church and even the heavenly temple. Now, when you're talking, you know, Eden, heaven temple, I mean, there you're really, really going to be talking about uh, the theology of Meredith Klein. Now, Meredith Klein was also a massive uh, a massive influence on Dr. Beale. So like, if you look at a lot of his books, you know, Meredith Klein is featured pretty large in his footnotes and stuff like that. But he also has um, a, a very small book that I tell people, you know, you want to start with G.K. Beale, read this book, read the little book, you know, God Dwells Among Us, you know, Eden's to the Ends of the Earth, Eden to the Ends of the Earth, right? And it's a very simple biblical theology of how Eden is so central to the biblical plot line, to the biblical storyline, to the whole history of redemption going all the way from Adam to Christ and beyond. And, uh, it's just absolutely fascinating, uh, the information, the typology, uh, that you get there. So yeah, man, there's, there's hardly anything that Dr. Beale writes and I don't get. And there's hardly anything that Dr. Beale writes that I don't like. So, uh, obviously a huge fan.
0: Yeah. Well said. And God dwells among us. I think it's probably, from my point of view, one of the most, I'd say the best entry-level book to biblical theology, in my opinion. I have it I have it on Audible, so I've been listening to it on an audiobook. For those of you who like audiobooks, great, great opportunity there. And it's so good. Uh, it's one of those timeless biblical theology books that you will have to keep going back to just to stay fresh. And when you see how Eden is interwoven throughout the temple, a lot of the stuff that you and I have talked about before, oh man, that is rich. That is stuff you don't get if you don't have access to this. And it changes your entire understanding of of scripture. It just makes it so much more rich. And what what can you say, right? It's gem upon gem upon gem when it comes to biblical theology, as, as you and I often discuss.
1: Oh, no, no doubt. Um, you know, for a lot of people where, where uh, G.K. Beal, um, maybe they know him from his commentaries or some of the big volumes, like let's say one of the big dictionaries on the Bible that comes out of IVP and Dr. Beal does uh, a resource for that or even the big volume that he did, uh, the major editing was done by Dr. Beal and D.A. Carson uh, where they did the, they show the relationship between Old and New Testaments. And so they show every major passage in the New Testament that's borrowing, citing, alluding back to the Old Testament. And it's a, it's a remarkable, there's really nothing like that resource anywhere. Um, I think more stuff is slowly trickling out kind of in that same vein of thought. But, you know, like I always tell people, like, you know, when you're studying a book like the book of Revelation, super difficult to interpret. Most people are totally intimidated by it, you know, but the key to the book of revelation really is the old Testament. And so Dr. Beale, I think is unique because he, um, you know, he, uh, uh, really shows you how to connect the testaments. And he really shows you that we have been given one Bible, right? That everything is organically Connected, uh, and so I think the other thing is is that if people want to explore the theology of Dr. Beale, they have to understand uh, Dr. Beale's um, you know major themes that he's developing in Scripture. And so, if people want to study Dr. Beale, um, they have to understand that for Dr. Beale, what is absolutely central to his theology is the new creation. And and even I would say this, even the new creation uh, is sort of subordinate. To the m- even larger umbrella of eschatology, what he calls the floodlight of eschatology. And so when you see things along the lines of what Dr. Beale is talking about in terms of eschatology, then you understand that for, for G.K. Beale, er, all of these biblical theological themes are contributing to the major, uh, eschatological theology that's emerging out of the pages of scripture. Um, and so, you know, when I, when I start talking to people about getting into biblical theology, I'm going to give them everything from a a sort of introduction kind of book, like, um, the unfolding mystery, Edmund Clowney, and then I'm going to give them some hard hitting stuff. Uh, so I'm going to give them, you know, Gerhardus Voss. I'm going to give them Voss's biblical theology, which is super, super difficult to read uh, especially if you have no background in biblical theology, but where G.K. Beale, uh, I think, uh, is what I don't want to say the most useful, but definitely supremely useful in this area is in the area of, of, of using scripture, actually citing scripture, uh, giving you scripture citations, scripture references, because for a lot of evangelicals and for a lot of uh, believers, right? Uh, we want scripture proof for everything, and a lot of more heavy, uh, uh, kind of you know, l- far-reaching theology. They they do a lot of assuming in terms of exegesis. They they sort of expect you to already know the exegesis. They sort of they expect you to kind of know the, the passages that they're referring to or alluding to. Whereas G.K. Beale. He gets into the specific verses. He gives you the specific references. And so I think Beale, his strength over other biblical theologians is his exegesis, his exegetically driven biblical theology. Uh, but I think when you connect somebody like Voss and Klein, maybe today, Lane Tipton, right? Somebody like that to G.K. Beale, I mean, you really kind of do have the perfect combination. So. Oh man, so, so many different things. And so I, I, I can't wait to talk to him about this stuff. Hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully we'll do several podcasts with Dr. Beal on everything from biblical theology to eschatology, uh, obviously eschatology being a major, uh, uh, focus of the church right now especially what's going on with like post-millennial and theonomic thought, you know, a lot of people are changing or, or kind of exploring their eschatology. They don't really know where they're at. You know, I think somebody like GK Beal is immensely helpful for demonstrating the classical reformed all millennial position. So, um, so yeah, man, I, I can't looking forward to this conversation.
0: Well, after a rich description like that, I don't want to deprive our listeners any longer. So without further ado, take it away there, Ramos.
1: Welcome to another episode, everybody, of Christ and Kingdom. My name is Emilio Ramos. It's good to be with you all again. Today on the program, we have a very special guest joining us. Dr. G.K. Beal is a professor at RTS here in Dallas. Uh, Dr. Beal, welcome to the show. How are you today? Yes, I'm... uh I'm doing well. And you? I'm, I'm doing really well. And actually the last time you and I spoke, we, we grabbed, we grabbed a burger and we had lunch and you were gracious enough to give me some of your time. And we talked about some eschatology and your books. And I'd like to continue that conversation here today. Sure. Okay. Well, jumping right in because we want to make the most of our time here with Dr. Beal. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your, I guess your, your overall thrust in theology, because I have read you extensively uh, over the years. I have looked to your work uh, just to help me in the area of eschatology, in the area of biblical theology. What is your overall burden when it comes to the subject of biblical theology?
2: Hmm. Well, it's pretty simple, really. I mean, all, all I've really done is tried to expand that, uh, a uh, simple model that you hear of creation, fall, and redemption. So um, I see that in creation, that Adam uh, he was he was given certain obligations, not merely not to eat of the tree, but Genesis uh, the commission in Genesis one twenty eight is part of are part of those obligations. And uh, so, uh, whether one wants to call that a a covenant of creation or a covenant of works. Um, doesn't matter. There, there are obligations he has to meet. If he meets them, then he will get escalated blessings of um, eternal life. His body will not cor- be corrupted. His soul will not be corrupted. He'll live in a secure place because evil will have been extinguished as he after defeating the serpent. And... Um, So, um, uh, Adam failed to do that. Um, By the way, some people don't think there's a covenant there because the word isn't used, but um, one doesn't want to make the mistake of what is sometimes called the word concept confusion. Just because a word doesn't appear doesn't uh, mean the concept isn't there. And, uh, for example, uh, marriage in Genesis 2 is not called a covenant, but it is in Malachi. And so, um, that's a good example. Uh, so anyway, there's a, there's a creational covenant. Adam fails. And so, uh, it remains, uh, for someone else to come and do that. Finally, the last Adam comes and he does that. He does that in a bit of an unexpected way from the Old Testament perspective in that, uh, uh, his uh, obedience, his victory <clears throat> over evil uh, is staggered. Um, it begins at his first coming, continues uh, through his people as he gives his spirit to them, and then is consummated when he comes back a second time and uh, and, then, and but what's very important here is that when he comes the first time and when, Uh, He begins to fulfill the Adamic covenant. And when those in him fulfill it in him, you begin to get irreversible escalated blessings that Adam was to receive. So you begin to get those. Uh, Believers get those uh, in part, but irreversibly, and then they're consummated at the very end. So uh, they're part of a new creation and a kingdom. And um, I I, I, I would say that... uh, Probably new creational kingdom is the major stepping stone of the Old Testament uh, and the New Testament storyline, which I elaborate in my New Testament biblical theology, which is really nothing more than an elaboration of that simple storyline of uh, creation, fall, and redemption. I think it's very important to elaborate that redemption, um, you need to say more than that because it sounds like it's only soteriology, uh, which is true. But soteriology also involves cosmology in the sense that we begin to be a new creation. Second Corinthians five seventeen: if anyone is in Christ, a new creation, the old things have passed away, new things have come. That is uh, a beginning fulfillment in the believer in this age of the new creation prophecies of Isaiah 65, 17, 66, 22, and 43, 18 to 19, which are new creation prophecies, so when we become regenerated and we're new creations, we actually begin to fulfill the new creational prophecy. We don't wait until the final resurrection of our bodies. Uh, that's the consummation of it. So um, it's very important to see that as many as may be the promises of God, according to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians uh, one twenty, they are, yes, in Christ. So they're not put off to the very end. They begin spiritually in this life and are consummated physically in the next, or we could say they begin invisibly in this life and are consummated visibly in the next life. Um, so you might wanna ask some questions of elaboration. That's what I what I call the staggered fulfillment of uh, <clears throat> redemption and new creation uh, is uh, really what I call inaugurated eschatology. And the end is uh, that the very end is consummated eschatology, so. I don't know if, you know, you. I, 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 there's a lot to think about here about a biblical theology of the temple, uh, biblical theology of uh, idolatry, um, of eschatology of kingdom. Uh, there, there are a number of what I might call sub-biblical uh, theologies that we could talk about. I've written a book on some of them. For example, a book called The Temple and the Church's Mission, which I shortened to Uh, A more popular version called God Dwells Among Us, subtitled Expanding Eden to the Ends of the Earth, which really gives the mission of the church to expand God's presence to the end of the earth. Adam should have done it. He didn't do it. Christ does it. We do it in him.
1: Yeah, no, amen. That's actually what I was going to kind of turn to next was your book on uh, the IVP book, Temple, Uh, where you really bring in the temple theme and show how central it is to biblical theology. Matter of fact, uh, it was only upon reading your book, Temple, that I really began to tie A lot of that in together in a very kind of uh, structured and explicit way. I got some of it from Meredith Klein early on, but your book is very explicit in showing uh, just the, I guess, the the reenactment as we go from Eden to the physical temple. Uh, Can you explain though, um, why is that so important to eschatology and how does that... Uh, kind of hermeneutically, I guess, how does that inform your biblical theology moving forward in redemptive history?
2: Well, as I said, the subtitle to the popular book is Expanding Eden to the Ends of the Earth. So actually, uh, there's a pretty well-known pithy saying among some Reformed theologians, which uh, I suspect that you have heard, And that is uh, that eschatology precedes soteriology, which means that Adam was to spread the presence of God uh, and and fill the earth. And when he would do it, that would be the consummation. That would be eschatology. So in a certain sense, he has this inaugurated um, uh, existence that is without sin, but it's not irreversible. That is the uh, an essential element of any definition of true biblical eschatology is irreversibility. So Adam was not in an eschatological state. I wouldn't even call it that he, before the fall. I wouldn't even call it a semi-eschatological state. He was in a state uh, where there was no sin. If he had been obedient, then that would have been consummated. So uh, now. Under the uh, era of sin, <clears throat> um, when we come into Christ, we, we are inaugurated eschatological beings awaiting, awaiting the consummation. So some do refer to his prior fall existence as semi-eschatological. Eh, that's okay, I guess, but I'm, I'm a little reluctant to use eschatology just because it means irreversibility. This is why I don't believe there's any true eschatology in the Old Testament. You have fulfillment of prophecy in the Old Testament but not eschatological prophecy. The eschatological prophecies are not fulfilled, whether that be temple, whether that be kingdom, whether that be new creation, whether that be the restoration of Israel. Um, Those those are not fulfilled in the Old Testament. Some think after 70 years in Babylon that uh, the uh, restoration prophecies were fulfilled. Uh, I, I would say that the motor for fulfillment began, but that the motor stalled and, uh, that, um, basically it didn't get revved up again until Christ comes. So I actually see that that return from Babylon, which actually failed because when they get in back into the land, Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9 says, we're slaves in the land. So they're still slaves. They're, they're still in bondage. They're, they're, they're still in captivity, spiritually, especially, but even by foreign powers. And so... And that continues on up to the Roman time when Jesus comes. And so um, uh, that failed return from uh, Babylonian captivity was a type of one that would truly happen. And um, so, um, but that's a good example of why I don't even think that the return from exile in, in Babylon physically was a fulfillment of an eschatological prophecy.
1: Um, now that's, yeah, no, I was going to say that's really, that's really interesting. Um, but in your book, Temple, um, I know at different points you point out how the word temple is fulfilled, not just in, in the believer. Let's say, you know, a lot of people know and, and can even quote at a popular level, you know, we are the temple of God, right? But it, there's actually a fulfillment of temple theology in the church and the believer, uh, and in Christ is, is that, would, that, would you flesh all of that out in your book as well, or is it just focused on one particular aspect of the temple imagery and fulfillment?
2: Well, um, your question is a very packed question, so I can answer perhaps different facets of what you may have in your mind. Um, certainly, eschatologically, when Christ comes, he begins to be the temple. Uh, as he says in John 2, um, tear down this temple, and uh, in three days I'll raise it up. And they misunderstood. They thought he was talking about the literal temple. And, um, but he was really talking about him already being a temple, coming as the presence of God, and then having broken out of the Holy of Holies. As John 1.14 says, uh, the word became flesh, and it tabernacled among us. And we beheld its glory. So that's what you see in the tabernacle is glory. So it it began to break out. And so even during his ministry, he was the beginning of the temple. That's why sacrifices. He's now the one who forgives sins. You used to go to the temple for that. You go to him for that. So he's taking over the role of the temple. Then they kill him. You can't keep a good temple man down. He rises right back up and is an escalated temple in ascended glory. And then um, then we... uh, Um, become a part of that temple as we come into union with him. And uh, we we become a lot of things. (laughs) Uh, He he has a lot of things as ascended Lord, uh, not just temple. I'm getting ready to publish a book in the spring on union with the resurrected Christ. Uh, That's just one of the chapters out of about 18 chapters, Um, at least 18 things that we come into union with. But that's one of them, and. So uh, the key point of the Old Testament temple, the essence of it was the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. That breaks out in Christ. He now represents the tabernacle and, uh temple presence of God. When we uh, come into union with Him, we share in that presence. And um, and as He also became priest, we were also priests in in that temple. And so that and so our our, our role now is, as as. Uh, Priest in that temple, just as Adam, uh, as a priest in the temple, should have expanded the presence of God uh, through himself and through his progeny until it covered until Eden expanded geographically and the spiritual boundaries expanded to cover the whole earth. And um, that, now we're doing that. Our our task is to uh, uh, expand Eden to the ends of the earth. So and that will be consummated at the end of time. Now some have taken. Since it's a very positive view of eschatology, some have uh, thought that I was a postmillennialist, and uh, but actually I'm 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 a, uh, an ironic uh, uh, an ironic postmillennialist. I just don't see that. Uh, I don't think you see the progress. Postmillennialists want to see a physical progress and uh, in the church dominating uh, the earth and culture and. I don't see that myself.
1: Yeah, I was actually going to ask you that question because um yeah, very familiar with uh postmillennial. I just did a series at our church on on eschatology and covered of course of course postmillennialism and that is one of the things that they argue is that the the adamic mandate now has transferred over to the church in a geophysical fashion that we are now to take the dominion and of course uh as you well know what that means is we have we're going to take dominion over the civil governments and the nations will bow to the law of God and those kinds of things so um uh do you see the mandate uh also being applied to Jesus in his dominion
2: well yes i mean i think jesus is presented as a an adam figure already in the gospels before you get to romans and first corinthians 15 so um yeah he's uh in fact, Matthew begins with literally uh the the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, uh, Son of God was a name for Adam actually, and um the genealogy of the book actually it says um, that's an allusion back to um Genesis five when it talks about the genealogies there so we're talking about the beginning again of a uh, biblical history and um, so that 's an overt illusion there in, um, in in Matthew, the very beginning of, of the gospel so um, it 's an Adamic marker uh, that shows hey we got someone who 's coming who 's taken over the role of the first Adam and um, he 's going to introduce a new creation so for example, one of the things he does throughout his ministry. What does he do? He um, he reverses the curses on creation by healing people. Um, that, that that's in breaking new creation. Even though they're going to die again, they, they, these are reversals of the curse temporarily, and they point to a permanent reversal in and ultimate healing and resurrection. Um, so, um, so yeah, certainly I think that uh, this mandate. In fact, I think that. Uh, uh, biblically speaking, uh, you know there, there's a covenant between God and Christ, and uh, uh, Christ is the last Adam, and He's going to do what the last Adam should have done. He did, and so that's the basis for us being able to um, uh, to be delivered, and uh, we're, we're we're covered in His righteousness. And uh, of course, also, uh, since he takes the penalty of our sin, uh, we're declared righteous uh, from that penalty as well. Of course, some Reformed people uh, and other evangelicals don't like the idea of the imputation uh, of Christ's righteousness. Uh, but uh, I think they're, they're going down a, a wrong track. I, I argue for it in my book, um, A New Testament Biblical Theology. And um, in the section on justification. Um, So I won't go more into that now, but I'd be happy to.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, actually, that was actually my next question was a New Testament biblical theology, because if your book on temple was not. Uh, insightful enough. Meaning when I read that book, I mean, the insights you gain from there are just tremendous, but also your big volume, a new Testament biblical theology, which correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in the book, you mentioned that it's the culmination of about 30 plus years of scholarship. And so it really is a massive tome, but but it it also is uh, just for the listeners it also is remarkably readable that's what i liked about it is that yes it's it's a big it's very big it's very tedious uh and detailed but it's it's actually remarkably readable if you just take the time and uh, i would really encourage everybody to to invest time in that book because that book Particularly, Dr. Beale was uh, so instrumental in my life because that 's when it really just showed me just how far biblical theology reaches, and um, how would you summarize that? Is it possible to summarize that book? <laughs> uh, but how would you summarize it, I guess, in a way for folks to grasp what were you doing in that in that book
2: well, as I said. Um you know that 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 book really is is an elaboration of uh creation fall redemption slash new creation kingship because um, with redemption you don't get the concept of kingdom really, and you don't get the concept of cosmology, so I think it really needs to be redemption slash new creational kingdom and um so so what I do is I give an Old Testament storyline. I just happened to have that book before me. Thought you might ask me a question, um, and I, I give the storyline of the um, of, of the Old Testament, and, uh, and and then I give it of the New Testament. Let me see if I can find that real quickly. Um, Yeah, it, it is uh, It is a mouthful. Um, <clears throat> and I'm just going to give you the storyline of, of the New Testament here. and um, But basically, the subtitle of the book is the unfolding of the Old Testament and the New. I was going to subtitle it the transformation of the Old Testament and the New. But there's a debate, even among evangelical scholars, even among Reformed evangelical scholars, much less between scholars outside of uh, uh, evangelicalism. There's a debate, do the New Testament writers use the Old Testament in line with its original meaning? And uh, as I began to talk with colleagues about whether to use transformation, they felt that that might... Uh, Seem to open uh, the door to New Testament writers transforming ideas from the old into something new that does not have continuity with the old. So I used unfolding instead, and because unfolding means that you're unfolding something that's really there. And um, so I, I think transforming could be a misunderstood word. So the so what I, what I did is I, I, I came up with an Old Testament storyline. I survey a good part of the you know about 50 60 pages at the beginning of the book is a really a kind of a survey of uh, the idea of kingdom in the Old Testament, the idea of eschatology in the Old Testament and then what I do is I, I formulate an Old Testament idea when I get to the beginning of the New Testament section um, I show how that idea is unfolded. And so I'll just read the idea here. This is the storyline of the New Testament. It's Jesus's life trials, death for sinners, and especially resurrection by the Spirit have launched the fulfillment of the eschatological already not yet new creational reign. So the, the, the main stepping stone of this storyline really is death, resurrection, by the Spirit as new creational reign. That's really the key stepping stone of the New Testament storyline, death, resurrection by the Spirit as new creational reign. And then the rest of the idea is that this is bestowed by grace through faith resulting in worldwide commission. That's where the temple thing comes in, worldwide commission to the faithful to advance this new creational reign and then Resulting in judgment for the unbelieving, all to God's glory. So, so that's a, a, quite a mouthful. All it's really doing is is expanding the creation, fall, redemption slash new creation kingdom model. So, I don't know if you want to. <laughs> no, that's great. I actually
1: there. I actually celebrate the, the lengthy heading there. It takes us back to a more puritanical time (laughs) where where the subject heading of books are like a a paragraph long.
2: Well, I'm, I'm uh, in this new book. uh, My editor's not letting me do that. I have these very long headings. And so he's, he's saying, look, I, I think we can abbreviate this. So.
1: Yes. Uh, well, let's switch gears here briefly, just to talk about eschatology directly. Oh, quick question for you. Just a quick kind of tidbit question here. What took you longer to write the New Testament biblical theology or your book or your commentary on Revelation? A big one.
2: Uh, the commentary on Revelation took longer. It took seven years. And then after seven years, I had to go back because there'd been so much... So many books and articles written over the seven years that I needed to interact with those. Right. So I interact with all those. I turn it in and then they don't publish it for three years.
1: The glories of publishing, huh? That's right. You
2: know? <laughs> so, yeah, that definitely took...
1: Wow. That's amazing. The revelation one. Wow, oh, that's amazing. Well, let's just talk uh-huh. quickly about eschatology. I also wanted to get your uh, opinion, uh, Dr. Beale on eschatology, because uh, many people obviously recognize you as an authority on eschatology, specifically on not just your lectures in seminary, on the seminary level and your biblical theology book, but as we mentioned, your commentary at Revelation is is So definitive of a work that even even people who who, who sort of um, detract from your position. I just recently heard a post millennial pastor, for example, uh, say that your commentary on Revelation is is favorite, even though he is a post and disagrees with you uh, time and again. Uh, but um, in terms of eschatology, um, really quick, just just because I know we're coming quickly on our time here, how would you describe, if you would, maybe the strengths and weaknesses of each major position, pre-, post-, and amillennialism? Um, just so after- you're forgetting one now. oh You're forgetting one. It's millennialism. Oh, yeah. yeah. The, very, the most popular, actually.
2: <laughs> and then Corey Tenboom said, the whole issue is a-pre-posterous.
1: <laughs> that's right that's right um well looking back though how would you describe i guess what you have noticed as the strengths and weaknesses of these views um and obviously i'm probably where you're at with amillennialism i actually like the word ano millennialism the greek preposition ano above because you actually teach this in your commentary and uh I think the millennium, strictly speaking, is above, but uh, but at any rate.
2: Yeah, I don't like amillennialism because the uh, A comes from the Greek word alpha, which means no, and uh, that that's wrong. There is a millennium. We just don't think it's going to be after Christ comes a second time, that it's uh, uh, going to be in a, a limited thousand-year um, earthly reign on this side of the New Heavens. And Earth, so um, I'll make some reflections. I think that postmillennialism and premillennialism are strange bedfellows, and they're bedfellows in the sense that they tend to have a literal interpretative approach um, to uh, many of the passages. That the and I'll, I'll refer to myself as an inaugurated millennialist. Um, that the, they'll take things literally. That the inaugurated millennialists will. Take spiritually in the inaugurated realm. And then, of course, uh, there will be physical consummated fulfillment. But um, they, they, they often, um, depending on what kind of premillennialist you are, uh, don't want to see um, the, the uh, uh, fulfillments of the Old Testament prophecies about new creation, um, the reign of the Messiah, the temple restoration of Israel. They don't want to see those as spiritually happening in the church age. They want to see that at the very end. Now, um, there are three kinds of uh, of premillennialism, so it's hard to um, summarize all of them, but they tend to to take things more literally um, as a rule. The the classic dispensationalists especially, as well as uh, the usual typical progressive uh premillennial approach. So that that that's just a reflection. What would be the strengths? Well I do think the strength of the premillennialist on the surface, when you read Revelation 20, uh one to eight, I think what they say makes sense. I mean that Satan is bound, it seems, absolutely. He can't do anything. So how can he have any power? So that that must not refer to this age because Satan's got a lot of power. Well, there must be an age to come then in which he has no power, which is the millennial age. That makes, uh, you know, that that makes sense. Um, And and I I think it's the strength of the premillennial position, that particular passage Um, in Revelation 20 and uh, verse 3. Um, of course, my answer to that is that uh, verses seven and eight say that when the devil the serpent was let out of that prison, he went together the nations Gog and Magog together to come against the camp of the saints. So that defines what the confinement meant. What did it mean? The devil was confined primarily to. Uh, not being able to mount a sustained attack that was going to be successful to annihilate the covenant people of God. So when he, so during the church age, the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Nothing can stop the progress of the church. But then there is this little tiny time at the end where the devil comes out and uh, the, the church basically, I think there's martyrdom, I think the church goes underground for a very, very short time, and, um, and it looks like the church will be overcome and then God delivers the church uh, according to the narrative through fire. So um, I, I think that the confinement in chapter 20 and verse 3 is not just a confinement generally, because when he's out of confinement, what does he do? He mounts an attack against the saints. the saints. So you have to define that in context. Which the um, premillennialist uh, I don't think does. So, so if you only had verse three and you didn't have verses seven through nine, uh, it would really make sense. But you do those verses, so context context determines that,
1: yeah, yeah, well if i can if I can bring up just a, a very popular notion today is that like as you mentioned you know uh, gog and magog, how would you how would you respond to somebody that's seeking to situate that in 70 a d in the destruction of the temple that that is Gog and magog right there
2: now, now now you're you're referring to a position we we haven't talked about yet, and that that, that is preterism. And uh, the idea is that millennium has been fulfilled, though it's certainly not a literal thousand years for the, for the um, uh, preterist. And the problem with, with, with the preterist is they're more figurative than the amillennialist on the book of Revelation and elsewhere. There is no literal destruction of heavens and earth. Uh, the description of Revelation twenty-one, Second Peter 3, it's all figurative. And that happens in 70 AD. The devil is completely defeated in 70 AD uh, and cast in the outer darkness. Um, the uh, restoration of Israel occurs in 70 AD. The, the resurrection occurs in 70 AD. It's spiritual. This is why, and interestingly, the Preterist position is close to Gnosticism because it denies a physical resurrection body. Uh, if you if you if you want to go into detail on that, read Max King's works. Uh, he is a Preterist, a seventy eighty Preterist, and and argues there is no physical resurrection of the saints. Does believe in physical resurrection of Christ. So there's just too much that uh, it can't all be figurative. I mean, it's just, uh, they try to argue that, but I I just don't think that it works. And especially because um, death has to be overcome. That's part of the curse on, uh, of the Adamic curse. And for them, only spiritual death is overcome. Physical death is not overcome. That's interesting. Paul calls those who see only a spiritual resurrection, not a physical resurrection, he sees them as heretics in 1 Corinthians 15, as well as in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1-2. through In 2 Timothy chapter 3, he sees Hymenaeus and Philetus as false teachers. Why? Because they deny the resurrection, which upsets the faith of some. And so, this is a contemporary Gnostic false teaching, which I think is serious because it denies that the full curses of Adam have not been reversed. Physical death has got to be reversed. This is why not only Christ's resurrection, but our resurrection in him physically is, is, is important. So I would, say, I would say that that is the Achilles' heel, especially, of the preterist position. It's very serious in my opinion.
1: Oh, that's really excellent. Well, Dr. Beal, we really appreciate your time. We obviously need to do a future episode where we can go take more time and go a little bit more in depth if, uh, uh, if you're willing to join us again because there's so much more we can talk about. And honestly... Uh, honestly, um, I think uh, your voice is, is is a voice that needs to be heard more um, because of the work that you've done. Um, a lot of us talk about you, and not a lot of us get to talk to you. So, <laughs> so if we can talk more to you and ask you some of these pertinent issues, I think it would be a huge benefit for the church. So, yeah, thanks so much for coming by, yeah. and uh, we'll we'll set up another one of these interviews here real shortly. Thank you so much, Doctor. Here. Yeah, let's do it. And,
2: and, you know, hey, I'm happy to talk with people who want to become students at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary as well. So if you run across some good candidates of students who you think have potential for ministry, send them our way because our classes are very small, seven to eight students in each class. And uh, uh, last year was my first year. It was fun uh, teaching such a small group
1: well amen well as you know we had heritage grace community church we've got a couple uh, members at your in your class so uh w- you know we're we're definitely glad to uh do, we're glad to support you any way that we can brother so well thank you so much uh for your time uh and uh, we look forward to another interview with you god bless you sounds good okay everybody well that is our episode for today please join us next time for another episode of christ and kingdom